0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a jam-packed show, so let's get right at it. Later we'll meet Ann Brown, who joined me from Wabush, Newfoundland, to talk about her new book, Bedtime in Nunatsavit, which is described as an indigenous fairy tale of dreams. That's a little bit later on. We'll also meet music journalist Michael Barkley, whose new book, Hearts of Fire, documents the year's 2000 to 2005 and how canadian music finally became cool first though let's meet comedian jessica
1: curzon i'm trying to take care of myself so i downloaded this app where you count your calories the problem is i lie on it how sick is that (laughs) i lie on my own app that is sick
0: she was recently awarded Best Female Comic by the Mac Association in New York City and also recently accepted the Nightlife Award for Best Stand-Up Comedian in New York City. You know her from her television specials. Perhaps if you've been lucky enough to see her at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, which I have been, we talk about that a little bit in this interview, uh, you know how funny she really is.
1: Oh, it's so good to be here. I'm, I'm very anxious. Um, and I was walking down the street the other day, and this girl was walking on in front of me, and she was on the phone. and I listened to her conversation, and it was literally like, Oh my god, I was on Instagram, and I posted this post, and I look so good! Like, I look so good, I look so pretty, and like, nobody commented, nobody, nobody commented, like Julie, Amy, Melissa, nobody commented. I was like freaking out on <laughs> Instagram, so I, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, I've been following you. And she ran away.
0: In this interview, we talk about her feature-length documentary, Hysterical, which explores the changing landscape of women in stand-up comedy and how she taught Robert Tenero to be funny. Here's Jessica Curzon.
1: I still do Zoom shows. I mean, I'm doing so many live shows, but I still do Zoom shows and it's like, you know.
0: How do you find them? I I have a number of friends who are comics and I've 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 been trying to support them and and watching the shows. And at first I found them to be really super awkward because I mean, there was no response and, and uh, what's your experience with them?
1: I'm so used to doing them now, but they're, I mean, they're very uncomfortable, but I'm used to them. So I, I've, you know, got, I I can deal with them, but (laughs) In a way, I, I there's something I like about them that people are like so up close and I can see their faces and their reactions, right, right. but when they don't go well, they're horrific, mm-hmm. meaning like it's just when the, because I do them for a lot of companies, like I do these things like during the day, right? For like um, where they do like a, a half hour little comedy thing with some comics or an hour thing. And, you know, if the group is uncomfortable or not into it, or they don't know each other and it's just,
0: or they haven't had lunch or whatever, right? It's a weird
1: experience. (laughs) But if when it's a company where everyone knows each other and they're a fun group, it's amazing.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you perform was at the Comedy Cellar and we were sitting in the front row, like essentially on the stage, you know, that front row is right there and I often wonder when you are performing that way, we are so close to you, uh, if that is intrusive or if it's great. You can see the people up close and personal
1: funny you say that it, it depends how close
0: yeah yeah
1: <laughs> i love like i always put the mic and the mic stand to the edge of the stage whereas some people really put it back so yeah. i love being close and intimate i'm that kind of comic i love crowd work I'm a crowd work comic I love being but but sometimes people are too close where I feel like literally they're like inside of me like it's crazy <laughs> and I'm like this is why I stay a little heavy to keep people away like I right. literally <laughs> keep weight on to keep people away <laughs> So <laughs> it's like it's too much yeah. but but I I do like being close to the audience. So I love that intimate intim- intimacy with, with uh, crowds. And I don't like when they see people far. I don't like mm-hmm. it at all.
0: I miss I miss the comedy cellar, Princeton. I miss being rammed in there with other people. And yeah. it, it, it lends a certain energy to it. It's different, it feels different because you're so close. And if one person laughs, it seems to infect everybody else. And it, it's just always fun. And the ceiling's low and it's dark. It just feels like the perfect room for comedy to me.
1: Absolutely. I mean, to me, that's the best club in the country. There's four rooms now. Um, They have four of them and all four I love for different reasons. Um, They're all different. You know, the, the, the main room at the Comedy Cellar is my favorite, the original one. And then they have a huge one, uh, the Village Underground, and then a very intimate little one, um, the Fat Black Pussycat, and then there's yeah. the bar at the fat, fat Black Pussycat now, which is different even. Yeah. And I just, it's, everyone's, you know, smashed in, and you're right, the energy in the room is really important, and it, it, there's just a certain energy at certain comedy clubs where it just explodes. And you just feel it when you walk in the room. Mm-hmm. And then some of the rooms don't have that. And I don't work at those clubs.
0: You're listening to my interview with Jessica Curson. You have been quoted as saying that it was your grandmother that got you into stand-up comedy. How so?
1: My grandmother literally, I was at a, the, her club. She belonged to a country club. And mm-hmm. I was sitting with my sister and my cousins. And they were all laughing, you know. I used to hold court, you know, my whole life, where people would just sit around me and laugh. I was silly, <laughs> and i I was always the class clown. I mean, it, it really, you know, people say that, but I really was. I learned that being funny and silly at a at, at a very early age would get people to like me. Right. Um, that power, that humor was very powerful, and that um, it it just was. It, I was very socially uncomfortable and that it it just helped break the ice and she watched me you know w- make everyone laugh and they were la- she just she literally called me over to her and I and she said Jesse you need to be a comedian you know she was this very um like big personality Jewish grandmother and I said, what do you mean? I didn't even know what she was talking about. And she said, you need to be a stand-up comedian. I said, I could never do that. I mean, I'd never, I did like a sixth grade play. I think I played a tree. Like (laughs) I literally was petrified of performing in front of people. And she said, trust me, I'm your grandmother. She said, every time you're sitting with people, they're laughing. Every time I see you. With other people, they're laughing, and I, I, I said I could never do that. I blew it off, and then I looked in the Village Voice. This was 22 years ago. I was in um, at NYU getting a master's in social work, and I, in the back of the Village Voice, there was a class uh, for stand-up comedy, and I said, you know what? I'm so lost right now in my life, and I'm down, and maybe i'll take this class and just try it and i took the class and uh at the end of the class this is so crazy i performed at caroline's on broadway in new york city which oh. is like i know at the at, at the end of comedy classes in new york you do this performance and you invite everyone you know so i had 35 people there and they all sat up front of course my whole family sat in the front and i did 5 minutes of stand up and I was so scared, Richard, I went, my mother's a therapist, which is, I talk about a lot about in my act, and she had to bring me to a therapist that deals with fears and phobias, and I had to do work around it, I mean, I was, I was vomiting the whole week up to it, I mean, I was sick, I was so scared, and I did it, and I just got into it i started doing open mics and i was i was always very nervous but i kept doing it and i I can't believe i'm still doing it 22 years later
0: was it that fear that made you better at it it
1: was the it was the horrible feeling of it Mm. like i'm comfortable with feeling bad i'm (laughs) with that horrible um like just feeling angst and and being fearful and and being stressed and like it's comfortable for me a lot of us comics are like down and depressed and anxious and whatever and that's what this career is really based on so if you're not comfortable with that it's it's you know a lot of people like i taught comedy for 12 years i'm actually teaching again on zoom i decided to teach all women so i'm teaching 18 female comics from around the country around the country right now um I'm in my fifth my fifth class tonight and uh you know I tell some people you're too happy to be a comic it's hilarious I'm like you got to go through a horrible breakup or lose someone like something right. needs to happen to you cuz you're too okay <laughs> so I was comfortable with the negative negativity of it and uh and it was it was hard and I, it was okay with me so I kind of was chasing that you know that angst
0: her grandmother suggested she become a stand-up comic i thought that was kind of unusual grandmothers don't usually push you in that direction so i asked if there was a show business tradition in her family Here's what she had to say.
1: Both my parents were in like community theater. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother was a huge stand-up fan. She was very into the Borscht Bell comic. So she was always seeing comedians. My stepbrother is Zach Braff mm-hmm. from Scrubs. He was always auditioning. So we were in that whole world uh, at, right when I met him. So my mom would take him to auditions and then he got parts very early on. So that was all happening. And... So I don't know, we, but we were always in like the arts and entertainment. Um, It was, I honestly think that they all saw my talent with making people laugh early on. No one was ever shocked that I became a comic. Like even right. people I grew up with and people I went to college with were like, of course you're a comedian. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just, it was always a gift I had to make people laugh. And I was always a mimic and I always could mock people and you know see someone and immediately do a character of them
0: you've been listening to comedian jessica curzon on the richard krauss show to keep up with jessica check out her website jessicacurzon.com and then have a listen to her entertaining podcast titled the relatively sane podcast it's available everywhere that you listen to podcasts Let's meet Michael Barkley, author of the national bestseller The Never-Ending Present, the story of Gore Downey and the Tragically Hip. He was the co-author of Have Not Been the Same, the Can Rock Renaissance of 1985-1995. to 1995. His latest book is Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music. 2000 to 2005. Featuring over 100 new interviews, the book traces the renaissance of Canadian music in those years, driven by bands like Arcade Fire, Feist, Tegan and Sarah, and Alexis on Fire. Michael Barkley joined me via Zoom. Michael, tell me a little bit about how this Canadian Renaissance in music between 2000 and 2005 differs perhaps from what I would have considered a a Renaissance in Canadian music that happened in the 1970s.
2: Right, well, I mean, it depends on our own generation. We all have our own definitions of uh, when a golden era is. Um, I co-wrote a previous book that said there was a Renaissance between 85 and 95, so uh, (laughs) it's all subjective. Um, this particular time, though, I think is really when the weirdos won. I mm-hmm. felt like this was when um, kind of unconventional acts that didn't really fit into the Canadian mainstream at all. Uh, some of them did, but most of them did not. Um, were able to kind of leapfrog over gatekeepers in this country and reach audiences directly around the world um, through the Internet, through message boards, through file sharing. Um, uh, kind of the traditional barriers weren't there that kind of held back a lot of Canadian bands in the past.
0: And the Canadian uh, boom that happened then uh, of the early 2000s came from a group of bands who decided not to follow the accepted wisdom. You talked about the internet, message boards, and that kind of thing. How important was the internet to the success of a band like Arcade Fire, for instance?
2: Well, Arcade Fire in particular were, be, kind of became the poster children during this period of, like, a band that whose career was made with one review on on the website called Pitchfork, which was still pretty new at that time as well. Um, and so that review ran a couple of days before the record came out, and the first printing of that album sold out within, like, a week. And so suddenly there was this incredibly hyped record that nobody could buy because they were on this, uh, this independent American label that... Um, you know, wasn't in the habit of printing 50,000 records just for the heck of it. And then having most of them end up in used bins or delete bins. So, um, that was one example, but even an earlier one was broken social scene from Toronto who had a, a similar thing. Their record was reviewed a couple of months before it came out in the U S and they were playing sold out shows that spring. Um, just cause it had spread through uh, file sharing. I mean, you and I are old enough to remember the days of buying records on import.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: uh, <laughs> that was just not a thing anymore. And, um, And also uh, music fans could could hear the music immediately, so you didn't have to trust even the gatekeepers, uh, like like the reviewers, the critics, like you or I. Um, Someone like ourselves might write something and then, uh, you know, when I was young, I would gamble 20 bucks or 10 bucks or 15 bucks to see if it was any good, which is something only hardcore music fans would do. Now they could just hear it or hear a snippet of it and decide whether they liked it or not. Um, And there's this kind of immediate response. I think Canadians really benefited from that in a way that uh, even more so than Americans or or British acts. um, I also make the point that uh, I feel like Sweden also had an unusual number of acts uh, Mm succeed during time as well, kind of places outside the usual centers and Canada also became, um, I don't want to say a niche, but like had a, had a cachet. So it's like, you know, if you're an American music fan who wants to be hip to the latest thing, like, Oh, wait a minute. No, there's all these, fans from Canada, you know, those places you might not have thought of. Um, And I was through across genres, too, like not just so-called indie rock, but like electronic music and and eventually hip hop as well. Um, You know, uh, folk music, uh, weird art rock music. It didn't really matter what the genre was. It was all coming out of Canada. It wasn't just uh, Neil Young guitar rock.
0: You're listening to Michael Barkley on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005, is available now wherever fine books are sold. Well, the one thing I think that... Uh, the bands like Arcade Fire and, you know, Danko Jones and whoever else it might be uh, of this 2000s period have with the people who uh, came before them in the 80s or the 70s or even the 60s is an independent spirit. We had Stompin' Tom Connors had his own record label. Mm -hmm. Uh, We embraced indie music here in this country, I think, in a bigger way and have for longer than most of the rest of the world.
2: Well, I mean, that's necessity. I mean, Canada is so small and, and um, you know, the, the the major label system is, is, is kind of a different beast here. And it's a bit of a farm team in many ways that exists primarily to distribute international records and with a few bones thrown to the domestic audiences. And some major labels here were better at that than others. But I, I think that um, what characterized this time is that this was a generation that realized that kind of the old models don't really work and they don't really benefit. Um, Canadian artists. So it's best to be as independent as possible. And here's the other thing with Canada. It's like, there's so much, um, conforming, uh, even though this country has such a glorious history of weirdos, whether it's, you know, (laughs) filmmakers like Cronenberg or bands like rough trade, or a lot of that history kind of gets buried by Canadians. And and we kind of think that the it's, it's all Celine Dion all the time. and, Mm -hmm. And it's not really, it's, it's, it's a lot of really strange and wonderful artists. And I feel like, um, this was a time when, uh, People were really not satisfied to exist just in Canada. They knew that what they were doing was unique, and they knew that that the rest of the world would would find it interesting. So it was, it was not. like, Don't try to get on. There's a long time where weird bands would try and like craft a pop single to get them signed to a label, right. and, it was, and now it was just like, no, never mind any of that. Just do what you want to do. Be the freak that you want to be, and then take that to the world. And that and that worked. Like when Canadians try to sound like everybody else. 95 percent of the time it doesn't work you know a Canadian filmmaker tries to look make a Hollywood movie often it just doesn't work you know um music we're a little bit more successful like Celine Dion like Brian Adams you know Shania Twain like Ooh. we also produce big international stars but um uh like I said at the beginning this is a time when when the weirdos won and this was not about you know Juno winners or 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 people who get a you know a, a page spread in the Toronto Star Um uh, this, this was much more unusual music for the large part.
0: I think one of the precursors to this wave, a, a band that, that strikes me as someone who paved the way for this, making idiosyncratic records that were uniquely their own, embracing the internet before a lot of other bands starting their own label uh, and selling on the internet were the Cowboy Junkies. They weren't part of this. 2000 to 2005 wave. Uh, but I think that they in some ways set a template that some of these other bands may have been influenced by.
2: Absolutely. And I talk about that in in my first book called Have Not Been the Same there's a significant part of that narrative because here's a really weird Queen Street West band playing a totally different take on American country and blues music. Really spooky, really weird, very kind of early velvet underground yeah. and and um and you know the record was made for 250 bucks, and it sold more than a million copies. And uh, you're absolutely right in terms of an independent. Like they, they you know licensed it to a major and took advantage of those opportunities, but they never changed, um, uh, you know, their own business relationship. Now I, I think they get taken for granted because as they went on, they had kind of nice radio songs, and and then people think of it as your parents' music or something. But um, but then a couple albums later, they'll take a left turn and make a weird record again, and and They've done that consistently. They still do. They still put out really weird records and then they'll put out a a nice pop record. Um, But that independent spirit, you're right, um, goes back. And again, so even when we have these weird Canadian artists, sometimes we just take them for granted, like because they're popular, you know, I mean, even like Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, like some of those records, they're not what you think they are. They're not like nice uh, classic rock records or, you know, it's not um, It's not James Taylor. You know, like some of those Joni Mitchell records are, are well, a lot of them are really deep and, and fascinating and a bit outré and, and Leonard Cohen as well. Like people have this image of Leonard Cohen now as this nice gentleman with a hat, like, you know, listen <laughs> listen to songs of love and hate. Like that's yeah. darker than Nick Cave. Like it's 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 out there. Um, so I think as Canadians, we tend to sanitize our weird past. Um, and, and I think it's time for us to stop doing that and celebrate it.
0: Do you think that the stigma that used to be attached to Canadian music uh, is a generational thing? When I was a DJ years ago, we'd do a Battle of the Bands thing on Friday night where we'd play new records and people Mm -hmm. would call in. And if I played a Canadian record, they'd say, it's okay, you know, for a Canadian record. And there was a a stigma attached to it. I think that stigma is gone. It's evaporated over time. Is it generational?
2: Yeah, it's gone. Are you old enough to know to remember the beaver bin? Do you know what that term means? I don't. In the early days of CanCon, um, Canadian records were so um, uh, reviled that that the beaver bin beaver bin was this garbage can in the studio (laughs) where DJs would just like toss the forty (laughs) fives into. (laughs) Um, But uh, no, I think it's true, and I I think that uh, you know it's it started to be um, true that. in the '80s, um, with bands like Cowboy Junkies and the Tragically Hip and Blue Rodeo and and Sloan and, and and that wave, and it was absolutely true during the wave I'm talking about. I think that and now, you know, after the narrative in this book, and now you know Drake kind of shattered every world record possible, and and uh, 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 yeah, so I think I think that stigma is is completely gone. So. I mean, even putting this book out now, I'm a 50-year-old man and I'm writing about the Canadian insecurity complex and how we finally shook it off. And I I wonder what a 25-year-old reading it will make of that (laughs) because I just don't think it exists for them and I don't think it has for a long time.
0: No, I think that's probably right. I remember working uh, in radio and having a bank of forty fives next to me, and there would be, uh, you know, the the new stuff. There would be archival stuff, older stuff that we would had to mix in, and then every third record had to be a Canadian record. We had to play thirty three and a third Canadian, and it would have its own row. So you just took the next one that came up. Kind of thing. And uh, inevitably, we, you know, those are the ones that we would get complaints about. And I could never understand it because to my ear, they often sounded the same, Mm -hmm. but there was a a tall poppy syndrome, perhaps, or there was a, a Canadian insecurity complex. I don't know what it was exactly, but it lingered for a very long time.
2: And it's not just Canadian. I mean, when I was researching my Tragically Hip book, I, I, uh, for whatever reason, I was rereading Peter Gorelnik's Elvis biographies. And there's, a, there's a story of, of a Memphis DJ um, talking about an Elvis record, and, and he's like, oh, "This can't be that good because this guy lives around the corner." Yeah. you know, <laughs> it's like so. We like to think it's a Canadian thing. And I, last week, I was in Germany, and I met the main critic from Der Spiegel magazine. And, and Germany, you think of as, as you know a, 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 th- a thriving culture. It's it's it's, um, it's linguistically uh, what's the word I'm looking for? um you know they, they have their own language You you think they have a strong local culture and he's like no like here uh there's, there's we, they have the same syndrome there's like if it's german it can't be that good and that's true of tv or film or music and and again only the weirdos really translate And he's like all those weirdos that the rest of the world loves bands like noi and can yeah. and all that kind of work yeah well, Kraftwerk is popular, but he but he said like bands like Noy and and Can like that's just the British people who like that like people here have, like just don't care <laughs> just like who are those weirdos like so it was fascinating to me to hear that you know a country like Germany has many of the same in, inferiority things as as Canada does because the German audiences you know. Uh, will flock to UK and US acts as as, as much as we do. You're
0: listening to Michael Barkley on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music 2000-2005, is available now wherever fine books are sold. In the book, you talk about arts funding uh, playing into the popularity of CanCon, of Canadian bands without the kind of funding that we have, which I think is often misunderstood by people, uh, would we have as vibrant uh, a music scene as we do?
2: There's two answers to that. A lot of people in this book did not receive funding, Hmm. or they didn't receive funding until later in their career. Um, A lot of funding, and this has changed somewhat for the better, but a lot of funding rewards things that are already successful. So uh, funding doesn't doesn't foster creativity funding doesn't mean you suddenly have interesting music happen what it means is is that once uh once you get a leg in the door through your own hard work and your own creativity and your own uh business hustle uh funding will help you sustain that Mm -hmm. so i you know there's a lot of bands who who got that initial buzz made their best record on their own with no money at all and then they get funding so they can go tour europe or they can tour the States and, and help them get a, a larger audience outside Canada. Um, I, I think the funding proves valuable once, once you maintain a, or once you achieve a certain level of success, it helps you tour abroad. Um, it helps you invest in a crew. It makes uh, touring a little more comfortable. Um, you're less likely to lose your shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I don't think it means you make better records, you know, and and I, I don't think um, I don't think it helps you uh, get out the door. Um, uh, one, it, 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 it helps pay your crew and it helps make touring a lot more comfortable. I think that's what it helps with.
0: I think we have to address the Nickelback issue here in the book. Uh, Denko Jones asks, do we hate Nickelback because of their music or do we hate them because we're supposed to hate them uh, and the music isn't even a factor? So Nickelback get beaten up by uh, music critics, uh, there are a certain number of fans who, you know, find it to be great sport to make fun of that band. Uh, what's your take?
2: Oh, I, I can't stand them. I can't <laughs> stand their music at all. Um, but I wanted to mention them just because they are the biggest band of that decade in America. Um, and so if you're going to talk about Canadian music during this time, you have to at least mention them. I mean, there are other acts too. Sum 41, Avril Lavigne, yeah. Three Days Grace. Um, I hate all these bands. Um, but, uh, they're, you know, they work their ass off. They're very popular. Um, and I think my point point in even bringing up Nickelback in the book is that there was a point in time where Canadian music was, would be only defined by its biggest star. So Canadian music is Shania Twain. Canadian music is Bryan Adams. Canadian music is, um, uh,
0: uh Joni Mitchell or Neil Young or whoever yeah, or
2: the guess who, um, and, and it's like during this period of time, it didn't matter. Like because you know, as a Canadian, you go abroad and, and Canadian music will come up and and people will just throw the biggest pop stars at you. You're like, no, 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 believe me, there's more. Um, and this time it's like Canadian music was bigger than nickelback. Like Nickelback was huge and more power to them. You know, they like I said, they work their ass off. They're very good at what they do. It's not my bag. Um, but they won. But so did everybody else, you know? And that's I, I feel like uh Canada is not just a nickelback punchline anymore and it never was during the Nickelback time.
0: So Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005, uh, features a lot of interviews. How long did you work on this book?
2: Well, I tell people this book took either two years or 10 years or 20 years to write, depending on how you look at it. So, I mean, 20 years ago, I knew that this was a moment, you know, it felt like this you know, Warhol movement in the sixties, or it felt like, uh, San Francisco in the sixties. It felt like London punk in the seventies. It felt like something was happening. And, and I was, I was working during that time. So I was interviewing people during those years and and taking notes in real time. And then, um, and then by the end of the decade, I was like, when Arcade Fire won the Grammy, which was just a WTF moment, like, Mm -hmm. um, this band that once headlined sneaky D's, you know, um, and, uh, uh, to me, that was like, okay, That something really happened here in this decade and that, and that should be a book. And then I didn't, for a bunch of reasons, didn't get around to it, but actual hard work on the book began two years ago. There was a hundred original interviews conducted, um, during the pandemic when nobody was on tour and very easy to reach. Right. Um, but the research does draw from interviews I did, you know, up to 20 years ago. So, uh, but, but two years of solid work on it.
0: Well, congratulations on it. And, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about it with me today.
2: Thank you so much for talking to me about it. I, I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm ex- And I'm really excited the book is out in the world.
0: You've been listening to Michael Barkley on The Richard Krause Show. His book, Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2000 to 2005, is available now wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Rayanne Brown. She's been creating art for as long as she can remember, originally starting with poetry. In 2012, she began learning the art of glass etching. Today she etches and paints a wide variety of products such as wine glasses, mirrors, ornaments and much more. She grew up in Nunutsevit, a small village with a population of just 250. That experience led to her latest project, a new book for children called Bedtime in Nunutsevit, which is described as an indigenous fairy tale of dreams. Raeann Brown joined me from Wabush, Newfoundland via Zoom. Tell me a little bit about the village. There's 250 people there. What was your life growing up there like?
3: So it's a really small community. Um, it's, um, it's pretty much the same population there now as it was when I was growing up. There's no roads in or out. The roads aren't paved. Um, the only way to get there is by a little small twin otter uh, in all year round. And then in the winter by, by um, skidoo and in the summer bud boat that's and it's still like that now
0: and did you feel when you were living there did you feel cut off from the rest of the world or was your was your village and the people there enough
3: so when I was little it was all I knew then um and the land is big. The land is vast. So growing up, I learned how to hunt partridge and how to snare rabbits. And right. I went fishing by myself. So to me, it didn't seem very small back then. It seemed big and you could go, you could get lost in the woods there. Like it was, it's nice. And then you you go on boat and you could travel for hours and hours. And to me, it wasn't a small place back then. Looking back now, I know the difference, but it was a big, big world to me back. And there are so many possibilities. Um, and now that I'm I'm growing up and I've traveled more, it's still to me one of the most beautiful places in the whole world. And it is still big in some ways, but it is very, very t- small and a tight-knit community.
0: Well, it certainly seems to have fired your imagination. Uh, you've written a book uh, set there, and you call the book An Indigenous Fairy Tale of Dreams. And it's about uh, a young girl named Naya who has dreams, and they are, as it says, filled with wonder and the freedom of the natural world. I can only imagine that growing up there, this maybe Naya is you as a as a younger person.
3: I think so. Um... When I wrote this story, it was from remembering experiences from my lifetime. Like when I was little, I did, I, I had visited each community. Um, so, for example, the first part of the book where Naya turns into a goose by the rapids, the rapids in Postville is a place you go up the bay, um, and it's essentially some people might call it a rattle. It's a uh, the water is it's rapids. It never freezes over and I remember seeing geese hundreds and hundreds of geese there in the winter time so every every part of the story was um, memories from those places that I had visited or known animals that are in those places and I think that you're right by saying that Naya was me because when I was little I would always imagine that I turn into an animal and I could I could just fly and I'd fly anywhere I want to. I'd turn into a fish and then I could explore the waters. Right. And so I think that by saying that it is very accurate because all the things that Naya turned into were things that I wish that I could be when I was little.
0: And did you wish that uh, was that completely from your imagination or were was that passed down from stories that you had heard perhaps folklore or something like that?
3: Yes so in Inuit culture um, if you might see like carvings and sculptures sometimes a man is a man but he's also half polar bear Um, so I think that definitely played a part in it that um, we do believe and there's a story called uh, Sedna the goddess of the sea that all the animals of the sea came from her and that she grew them from her hair so like those were all parts I guess played into the um, imagination of the story.
0: You're listening to Ann Brown on The Richard Grouse Show. Her book, Bedtime in of is available wherever fine books are sold. Was storytelling a big deal in your family? I know that in indigenous culture, oral, the oral tradition is very important. Uh, was it so in your family?
3: Um, so my grandmother, Christine, she'd love to tell us stories and it was sometimes I would sleep down there just to hear her story. Sometimes yeah. it, it was different every time yeah. she would talk about things that happened when she was little. And she was a great storyteller. Unfortunately, she never wrote a book, but I can only imagine if she had, I think, a little bit been a great one.
0: <laughs> and the arts. It seems to me, from reading uh, about your life, the arts have always been there for you. Uh, you are a, an artist that works with your hands. You've now written a book, which you wrote the the dialogue for, the the prose for, and did the uh, illustrations for. How important, when you were growing up, uh, were the arts to you and, and being able to create something?
3: I have been doing that for as long as I can remember. It's always been a part of my life. Um, Everybody in my family has some kind of artistic talent, whether it's making clothes from uh, like silskin boots or mittens, or uh, my mom does a lot of things. My father's a carver. Mm -hmm. Um, I have cousins that make um, traditional clothing to this day. Uh, It's always been a really important part of my life and i think it has really shaped who i am just being able to create and i've actually made a living and have a really successful business from just creating and i i think that people really appreciate it so
0: yeah it's called enuki glass art and engraving and yes. tell me a little bit about what you do there
3: so um it's Inuki glass art and engraving um right now we I have expanded into a la- like laser engraving business but essentially i had started this just from my paintings and um just creating everything i would etch everything i could get my hands on by hand it started from my kitchen table believe it or not but um i really loved what i did and i guess it showed and then uh, other people really loved it too i have collectors all over the world incredibly I a little like coming from a small little place where I am and I have things that have gone to places that I don't know if i'll ever visit in my whole lifetime but. Which is pretty amazing, so we do um, right now, we do I do a lot of indigenous work so all of the designs that are engraved or etched people or in put into materials are my own original drawings. Um, We also do small memorials, but most everything that comes from our store, everything is handmade. Everything goes through our hands. Um, Everything is personalized and customized. And one of our most, some of our most popular items are the things that I incorporate the Northern Lights into, which is a really prominent thing in Labrador. Like anybody who has been to Labrador will tell you about the Northern Lights. It's something that we're really known for.
0: Well, we see them in the book as well. And you've, you've brought them to life in the book. You've been listening to Rayanne Brown on The Richard Kraus Show. Her book, Bedtime in Nunatsuviet, is available now wherever fine books are sold. A big thanks for Rayanne for joining me. Also, thanks to Jessica Curzon. Check out all her upcoming gigs and her podcast and everything. You'll find all the information that you need to know at jessicacurzon.com. A big thanks to Michael Barkley. Uh, his new book is a fascinating look at the early part of the 2000s it's called hearts on fire six years that changed canadian music 2000 to 2005 that's available wherever fine books are sold big thanks to michael but of course my biggest thanks goes to you for listening i'm richard krauss stay happy stay healthy stay safe stay weird and we'll talk to you again soon